0: Welcome to our podcast today on force majeure. We're going to give a 10-minute primer on defenses that may be available to avoid performance on a contract based on coronavirus or the government orders related to coronavirus. I'm joined today by my partner, Barbara Wall, who's a senior partner in our commercial litigation practice, and she has litigated many cases that have been focused on force majeure, impossibility, and commercial and practicability for many, many years. So welcome to our podcast, Barbara.
1: Thank you. Delighted to be here.
0: And let's just open this up. Do you expect that we're going to be looking at an uptick in contract disputes arising from coronavirus?
1: Well, I'm going to give you kind of a lawyer answer, which is maybe. Uh, I know that sounds uh, like equivocation, but uh, really, it's going to depend on whether contracting parties are able to work out their problems without going to court and whether they are going to be less likely to litigate given what is likely to be a backlog in the courts once things are started up again.
0: And when you're talking about litigation, I assume you're talking about litigation focused on coronavirus consequences. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. There are many disruptions to commercial practices and many courts are just closed down and their activities suspended. So whether new litigation will start up, whether old litigation will be changed, how things will resume, at least at this point, is very much up in the air.
0: And what do you think the likely legal grounds are for excusing any obligation to perform a contractual duty in light of the coronavirus?
1: Well, there is a bucket of possible defenses that a party can use when it is unable to perform under its contract. And essentially what we're talking about when I say unable to perform is it is literally a breach of the contract. There are three principal legal theories that often get jumbled together, but they are actually distinct doctrines. One is called force majeure, the other is the doctrine of impossibility, and the third is the doctrine of impracticability, or sometimes called frustration of purpose.
0: And how would we get to that analysis? In other words, how would an issue like that even arise?
1: Well, a party to a contract is supposed to perform and doesn't. There is a failure of performance, and the party that is supposed to receive the performance complains or perhaps even files a lawsuit about um, whether this performance has been excused. It is the non-performing party that asserts these defenses. The defenses are three distinct possibilities, but they're actually different. A lot of times people refer to them, both lawyers and laypersons, um, as a jumble, uh, as force majeure. And really, it's kind of a cool word. So people like to use it and um, makes lawyers feel like they remember something from law school. But um, it actually, by itself, refers to a distinct contract principle that is a clause in a contract that excuses performance.
0: Got it. And and you mentioned that there are s- several categories impossibility, force majeure and impracticability. And what what's the difference among those three defenses?
1: Well, force majeure is literally a contract provision. It's written into a contract. It specifies what excuses will be allowed. Typical excuses for contract performance are things like war, acts of God, terrorism, specific items that disrupt everyday commercial activity. It would be unusual, for example, to see reference to a pandemic in a force majeure clause, but not unusual to see a reference to governmental order that prohibits performance.
0: And what about impossibility? That's not written into the contracts, right? What tell us about that?
1: So impossibility is a common law doctrine that is implied in every contract and it doesn't have to be written in, although sometimes impossibility clauses are, that's not too often, but it is a common law doctrine that is applied everywhere. And essentially what it means is that if performance has become impossible due to a wide range of activities, then performance is either completely excused or delayed. And it just depends what the circumstances are and how, um, how activities can move forward once the intervening event has been removed.
0: And what would an example, in in today's context, what would an example be of impossibility related to the coronavirus? Do you have a good example for us?
1: So let's see, let's suppose you are a hospital and before the pandemic, you quite routinely ordered a shipment of surgical masks from a company in China And the shipment is supposed to be delivered on May 1. But because of uh, the urgent need for those masks and the cancellation of flights between China and the U.S., the disruption of the usual trade activities, your supplier can't get you those masks that you've ordered by May 1. So the supplier will be excused from having to provide the shipment by May 1. However, depending upon what happens with the availability of masks, the resumption of flights, the court might ultimately find that the supplier has to give you masks at a later date, but not by May 1.
0: So the the performance might be immediately excused, but not necessarily for the long term. That's right. And let's go on to impracticability now. Uh, tell us about impracticability, and if you can, give us an example of that in today's context.
1: Impractability is um, like impossibilities loosey-goosey cousin. That is a situation where performance might literally be possible, but the change of circumstances make the arrangement inappropriate or impracticable, so that performance is once again, excused or delayed.
0: And do you have an example of that?
1: So let's use a different one here. Let's assume you are a trade association and your annual convention for your thousands of members is scheduled for May 1 at a hotel in a state where the governor has issued an order that says no more than 10 people can gather. So it would technically be possible for your trade association members to come to the conference. So the doctrine of impossibility is not really applicable. But it certainly would be impracticable for them to attend their conference because they would be committing a felony. And uh, the law doesn't require performance of a contract that subjects A performing party to criminal sanctions, so that's where the doctrine of impracticability would kick in to excuse performance.
0: Got it. And it's always good to advise a client: don't do this if it would be a felony, right?
1: Always, always good advice, indeed. (laughs) All
0: right, let's just go back for a second to force majeure uh, itself. Now that you described as a contract provision, can you give me uh, some? further description of that and maybe an example of how that might operate?
1: Sure. So force majeure clauses, um, I like to say that they are carefully analyzed and um, uh, negotiated, but the truth is that a lot of times they come out of somebody's form file because they don't come up all that often. And when they do, the courts really don't like to apply them. So um, they tend to have Big general categories of um, excused performance, things like acts of God, disasters, war, that sort of thing, activities that are outside of the control of the contracting parties and might be anticipated, but um, are are not really likely to happen in their transaction. So... um, there may be um, no one particular itemized event in a force majeure that fits um, your particular problem. And that's where um, the doctrines of impossibility and impracticability are used. The force majeure clause related to the coronavirus is probably going to be most applicable where. Acts of government regulation are spelled out. And so that it, would
0: be that would be the government orders, the various stay-at-home orders, for example.
1: That's exactly right. If we talk about the hotel example that I just gave a minute ago, if the force majeure clause specifically references governmental orders as excusing performance, that could be used as a breach of contract defense.
0: Got it, and. Um, Now, what will be different about litigation that arises after the coronavirus pandemic is, I suppose, not gone and over because it's here with us for a while, but after these initial impacts to contracts have, have taken place, what will be the impact to litigation that makes it different from usual contract defense?
1: Well, we haven't seen anything like this disruption to the legal system at least not in my lifetime. And I've actually never even heard of anything quite like this. Most trial courts have uh, suspended activities, deadlines, and statute of, statutes of limitation have been suspended. Uh, they are really taking only the most critical kinds of matters. And What's going to happen when the court systems resume is that there will be a tremendous backlog of cases that were already in the system that have been stopped for perhaps months. So any new litigation arising from breach of contract related to the coronavirus is going to get stuck in that backlog. Things are not going to move swiftly even once Uh, The courts are up and running again. And in specific points in litigation um, where you have a trial, where you have decision making, where you have um, um, initial status conferences, that is going to be a real bottleneck because the courts will have so many other pending matters to deal with. There will be increased pressure for the parties to mediate their disputes There will be a variety of outcomes depending upon what state you're in and whether there have been governmental regulations in your jurisdiction that have um, precluded gathering, for example, or otherwise provided other reasons for non-performance.
0: And do we have any clue about how some of these cases might turn out? Is there any case law we can look to from the past to... uh figure out where we might be headed?
1: The closest that we've been able to come up with was uh, case law involving the 1918 influenza epidemic. And if you look at that, those cases, the courts, and, and let me pause for one moment, because in those instances, I don't believe that the courts were suspended and there weren't the same types of um governmental orders banning people from gathering. So there wasn't quite the same level of disruption as we have now. But in those cases that we do have from that period, it does seem that the courts were more willing to excuse performance of contracts than they might otherwise have been because of the worldwide effects of the influenza virus at that time.
0: Got it. And that might be more acute or more, more prevalent in states that have, exi- have stay-at-home orders. Would you agree?
1: I would agree. And in those states, um, it is more likely that force majeure or impracticability or impossibility doctrines will be found to excuse performance
0: by the way, I just want to mention here that on our website at errantfox.com, we have an ongoing and updated list of all uh, stay-at-home orders issued by states, by counties, by cities. We have the actual order, and we have uh, obviously a list of states of where those orders have taken place. Well, Barbara, thank you for your thoughts today, and thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure.
0: And so everybody knows who's listening today for more in-depth coverage on this topic, you can also have a listen to our firm's webinar, which is about 45 minutes and posted at errantfox.com, similar to the alerts that I just mentioned about government stay-at-home orders. And we also have many coronavirus-related topics. So thank you, Barbara, and thank you all for listening.